It's Extra Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. So this episode is the first episode of Season 3 of Extra Crispy. As I noted at the beginning of Season 2, I think the best way for me to handle this whole podcasting thing, since I am not a full-time podcast producer, as much as I would like that, I really enjoy podcasting. Alas... I enjoy a lot of other things I do as well. <laughs> and maybe one of these days, you know, I get some wealthy patron to allow us at Extra Crispy to have a, an engineer other than myself and uh, some help on this. And we could do this more often. But as it stands, I think about 10 episodes per semester probably what I should shoot for. So today's episode is what we call a monocrisp. It's it's a monologue. It's some of my thoughts. I'm not interviewing anybody. I'm just telling you what I think. And I think my thoughts are pretty okay. They're some of the most okay thoughts around that you can find on podcasts, that is. So today the topic is, or the title of this is, An Invitation to Wrestle. And I think you might enjoy this one. You might find some good stuff to bless your ears and bless your soul. Hey, if you like what you hear, give us give us some love on iTunes. Give us a good review. If you don't like what you hear, you don't have to share your opinion on iTunes. <laughs> and you can also like us on our Facebook page, Extra Crispy Podcast Facebook page. And uh, that sure would help. Because the more you share this stuff, the more we can do. All right. So let's get on with this thing. An invitation to wrestle. Extra Crispy. Season 3. The premiere episode that you have all been highly anticipating. It's here, folks. It's here. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a true intellectual giant. Uh, He was one of the professors at Oxford back in the day. He was good friends with Tolkien. He actually encouraged Tolkien to pursue writing and finish this thing called Lord of the Rings. Good call, by the way. (laughs) And I remember years ago, I bought this book that was an and anthology of C.S. Lewis writings and there's a lot of good stuff in there but I got to tell you some of the stuff was so far over my head like I just had a hard time tracking with it and oftentimes I I encounter people that write that way they're they're in academia and they just write at a level that unless you've got a PhD it's, it's hard to understand what they're getting at but C.S. Lewis was very interesting because as as intellectual as he was He had such an ability to creatively convey ideas about meaning and life and spirituality and truth uh, that you rarely see in authors. And he could even do it in a way that kids could get it. And probably his most famous work was not his academic stuff. It was actually 
the children's books that he wrote, the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, it, it's a, if you've never read the stories or seen the movies, the movies weren't that great that came out a few years ago, but I hear there's a reboot coming. But if you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, basically it is the story of these four children who are living in London during World War II when the Nazis begin their bombing campaign and they're whisked away from the city where there's violence and you know their lives are endangered and they're whisked away to the countryside and they stay in this chateau, this very big place, mostly unsupervised, and they do what kids would do if you're mostly unsupervised in a huge place, run around, play hide-and-seek, and they end up stumbling into this old antique wardrobe that happens to be a magical wardrobe. Actually, this wardrobe is a portal to a whole other place, a place called Narnia. And so the Chronicles of Narnia is just their adventures in this other place. And in Narnia, there's witches and elves and dwarves and all kinds of fairy tale creatures. But one character that they encounter in Narnia is this lion named Aslan. And Aslan represents Christ. And there's a point in the story where one of the kids, I, th I believe it was Lucy, she's talking about Aslan. And she says, you know, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he's good. I love that quote because I think when it comes to God so often, whether it's people on the right or the left, so often we want to squeeze God into our ideological framework. We want to squeeze God into our doctrine or our religion. We want to tame and domesticate God. But it's really kind of a ridiculous, preposterous endeavor. If there is a God that we, these creatures with very finite <laughs> understandings of reality in the world, that we could actually get a handle on the one who created the universe. So I think C.S. Lewis, in, in writing The Chronicles of Narnia, in that statement, I think he says something so profound about God that, that we ought to keep in mind. God is good, but God is not tame. But I think the same could be said for the Bible. I have to admit, I've had a rather complicated relationship with the Bible over the years. <laughs> and much of that complicated relationship is because I'm a pastor. <laughs> for the last nine years, I've been the head pastor at North Shore Vineyard Church. And, you know, I remember about four years ago, I've, I've, I've been asking questions about I've, I've just life and meaning and religion and God and the Bible as far as I can remember. I, I think I've just resolved to, like, that's just, I'm, that's who I am. I'm always going to ask questions. I'm, I'm, I really just don't want to go along with anything that's going to be bullshit. So I feel like I have to ask questions. And I feel like I have to even listen to other people's questions. And engage what they're asking. And you know, the last four years have gotten uh, pretty difficult me with, with, with the questions that I've been asking about Scripture, about God, about 
what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this crazy world that we live in. But I can honestly say, you know, I, I do feel like in this last year I've kind of landed in, in, in a better place with the Bible. And I can honestly say as much angst as I've had about the Bible, because it is a crazy book, it is not a tame book, I really have come around to see that it's a good book. It's a beautiful book. And I think so much of my problem with the Bible is just the way that I was, that I, that I learned to look at it, the way that it was communicated to me that you engage with this book. See, I think for many people in, in America these days, when it comes to the Bible, we, we, we look at the Bible as this book that is primarily given to us to answer questions. I remember as a young Christian hearing B-I-B-L-E stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. I remember going to a men's event one time and somebody holds up the Bible and they say, this is the owner's manual for your life. And the idea was like, you know, you get a problem, you get the check engine light going on in your life and you pull out the owner's manual and find out what the symptoms are and find out the answer and then do that thing and go on your way. But what if the Bible is best understood not as prescriptive, telling you what to do, but descriptive, describing what it is like for people who have wrestled with God and meaning and love and justice and compassion and all these kinds of things throughout the last three for millennia. I got to say that the longer I go on in this journey, I am getting a lot more out of the Bible that way. What if the Bible isn't going to answer every question for us, isn't going to tell us the answers for everything that we face, but what if the Bible is actually a window into people who've wrestled with similar things in their own context. And maybe their answers aren't going to be the same answers that, that we get, but they show us something of what the process looks like. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, there is this interesting story. So God approaches this guy named Abraham and says, Abraham... I want you to follow me and to a place you don't know, and I'm going to bless you. Not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to bless the entire world, all the nations of the world, through what I do through you and your descendants. Abraham says, okay. And he follows God, and God makes this covenant with him. Abraham is, is pretty old, can't have children, but God promises him a son. And sure enough, when he's around 100 years old, him and his wife, Sarah, they have a baby boy they name Isaac. Isaac, when he grows up, he has uh, twins named Jacob and Esau. Now, in that culture at that time, if you were the firstborn, you, you really had a leg up on everybody else because you, you were in line to get the bulk of the inheritance. And uh, what do you do with twins? Well, the firstborn is going to be the, the first twin that comes out. Doesn't matter that you're both born minutes apart. 
It's the first one out is the older brother. And so Esau is born first, but Esau comes out and, and, and Jacob is grabbing at his heel. And that's where he gets the name Jacob, which actually means supplanter or deceiver. He's trying to take, take from his brother. Well, as the story goes, Jacob ends up growing up and he lives up to his name. He cons his brother Esau out of his birthright. He cons his father, tricks his father into to, to blessing him, giving the blessing that is reserved for the firstborn and, and giving it to, to Jacob instead of Esau, who was in line to get it. Needless to say, this does not endear his brother Esau to him much at all. And so there's conflict between them, and Jacob's kind of running from Esau for a while, but he, he realizes he has to face up and you know deal with things at some point. So he's on his way to deal with Esau. And then it says the night before he actually deals with Esau, he bumps into God, or an angel. And he wrestles with this angel all night. And so it's coming to the, the wee hours of the morning, and the angel's like, dude, let me go. And he's like, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so the angel finally, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll bless you. I'm going to change your name while I'm at it. <laughs> so he changes Jacob's name from deceiver to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. Think about that. The the patriarch of the twelve tribes of Israel, the, the Jewish people, the, the you know, this is right at the beginning of the story of what God's doing to rescue humanity. His name gets changed from deceiver to one who wrestles with God. Now, if you're looking at the Bible as prescriptive, as just telling you, you know, wisdom for your life or telling you the rules or what you're supposed to do in every situation, you're gonna read a story like that and go, eh. Nothing there for me. But you and I both know that oftentimes the most profound truths don't come in a didactic way. It's not just somebody telling us what to do. That, that doesn't really do much to engage us. Sometimes the, the most profound truths come in stories. Sometimes the most profound truths come in poetry, in song, in art. And so if you're looking at a story like that as prescriptive, you, you might just assume to, to just skip it. It doesn't offer me any practical advice for how to live my life and work in my job. But if you look at it as descriptive, it is an invitation to wrestle with God. See, all throughout the Bible, we find people who have to wrestle with God. It happened with Abraham. It happened with Moses. It happened with Jacob. It happened with King David. And it doesn't just simply stop with the Old Testament. We see it continuing on into the New Testament. And the book of Acts, the book of Acts is just really kind of the, the history of the early church for the first couple of decades. And you know, Bible scholars will say that Acts chapter 2 is is kind of the birth of the church. It's the day of Pentecost. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, it goes something like this. Jesus has spent three years doing his earthly ministry with his disciples. But he tells his disciples, I'm leaving you guys. But it's good that I'm going away. 
Because instead of having this external relationship with God, I'm going to send you my very spirit. The spirit's going to dwell within you, lead you into truth, comfort you, give you courage. So I want you guys to go to Jerusalem and just wait until the spirit comes. And so they do. They go to Jerusalem and they wait and wait and wait. And while they're waiting, the city is beginning to prepare for one of its annual festivals, the Festival of First Fruits or the, the day of the Festival of Pentecost. And when finally the, the high day of that festival comes up, the day of Pentecost, they're up in this room and they're praying and they begin to hear the sound of a hurricane force wind. And then they begin looking around and it's everybody's head looks like it's on fire. This is crazy stuff, crazy stuff. <laughs> but kind of like the burning bush in the Old Testament, their, their heads weren't actually burning. Nobody's skin was melting. But then something strange happens. They begin to proclaim the wonders of God in languages that none of them knew. Most of them were, you know, kind of rural people who grew up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they're proclaiming the wonders of God in all these other languages that happen to be the languages that many of the people visiting Jerusalem for the festival spoke. So they spill out of this second story place where they're hanging out and into the streets that are crowded with all kinds of people. It's only like nine in the morning. And some people see this crazy group of people that, you know, obviously if you're Jewish, they just seem like they're jabbering and people begin to make fun of them and like, dude, you guys stay up partying all night and you hadn't quit or you, you hitting the bottle early. And Peter gets up and he says, look, folks, we're not hitting the bottle this early in the morning. We're not drunk. In, instead, what is going on, this is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And Joel said this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on your servants, another way to translate servants with slaves, even on your servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit. Now, I, my first decade of being in the church, I was around very charismatic Pentecostal expressions of Christianity, and I heard about the second chapter of Acts all the time. I mean, that was hardly a Sunday went by that that, that didn't get quoted or something talked about about that. But, but most of the time, the emphasis was on people speaking in tongues and prophecy and all these kind of powerful things going on. But I find it very interesting that out of all the ways that Peter could explain what was going on, he, he quotes this prophecy because it's a radical revolutionary thing that he's saying up to that point in history it was mainly a jewish guys club the only people who really got to get around god were a handful of jewish guys throughout the centuries under the old testament law you know to to minister in the temple it wasn't good enough that you were born ethnically jewish and a part of judaism you you actually had to be from the tribe of levites and even out of that tribe, it was just a very select group of people that could actually minister in the temple or go in the Holy of Holies. So, you know, this whole experiencing God thing, it was not something that, that too many people had an encounter with uh, throughout the, the Old Testament. And Peter gets up and says, this is actually what was prophesied, that, that God's blowing this whole thing open, that anybody can get in on this. 
men and women, young and old, slave and free. God is doing something that is for everybody. And it was off to such a great start. But then if you look at the early church for the first few years, it pretty much just looked like a mainly Jewish guys. I mean, there were some women who got in on it, but it was pretty insular. I mean, it, the early Christians didn't even think of themselves as Christians. They basically were following Judaism. They just believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So there wasn't a, a big break between Christianity and Judaism at the time. But that whole thing about the Holy Spirit being for everyone, yeah, they, they, they really didn't see that happening. And so it was like some 10 years after Peter made that proclamation, that things begin to, to shift a bit. Peter is sitting up on this roof one day, waiting for dinner to be cooked. I kind of imagine him having one of these kind of Homer Simpson visions, but he, has, he falls into a trance and he sees this like a big tablecloth or sheet coming down from heaven. And when it opens up, there's all kinds of animals on it. And he hears the voice of God say, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Well, the problem is a lot of the animals that are spread out <laughs> are unclean animals. They're animals that the Jewish people were forbidden to eat, you know, like crawfish and shrimp and lobster and pigs. And Peter, Peter objects. He says, God, I, I can't do that because the Bible tells me so. <laughs> and God says, look, whatever I said is holy, it's holy. Rise, kill, and eat. And so this, this vision is repeated three times, and, and, and God keeps telling him over and over again, like, I, I said it's cool. Go for it. Well, unbeknownst to Peter, there is a, a, a guy named Cornelius who was a Roman centurion, which you have to realize, back in the first century, Roman soldiers, Jewish people living in Jerusalem, they were not like cozy with one another. Romans were kind of like the arch enemy, the ones who were oppressing them and burdening them with taxes to fight wars that they didn't care about. So this Cornelius guy has been praying to God. God's heard his prayers. And it turns out that that whole vision that Peter had, it wasn't even really about food. It was actually kind of a reference to back what God had compelled Peter to share on that first day that the Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, that this thing was for everyone. It's the 10 years and not too many of the everyone category had got in on what God was doing. So Peter shows up at Cornelius's house because that's, God kind of directs him that way. He shows up at Cornelius's house and he begins to tell them about Jesus and stuff. And right in the middle, before he can even finish his whole sermon, the Holy Spirit falls upon these this Roman soldier and his whole household. And they begin to experience the same kind of Pentecost experience that the disciples had 10 years earlier. What do you do when God is behaving badly, when God is blessing the people that you thought were outside of God's grace and God's love? What do you do when you see that, when it goes against what you actually your your own understanding of the scriptures. God is not a tame God. <laughs> and sometimes it, it, it looks like God's behaving badly from our perspective. Well, 
this is happening. And then a few years later, the Apostle Paul starts launching out into ministry, and he's doing ministry exclusively among non-Jewish people, which finally leads up to this point in, in the book of Acts, I think it's around Acts chapter 15, where they have this whole council in Jerusalem to deal with the one central issue that they can't figure out, and is it like, can Gentiles even be a part of the church? And 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 if they are, what kind of rules do they need to follow? Now, this seems totally un- uncontroversial to us today because we live in a world where, you know, we're the beneficiaries of what happened during this meeting. But the Jerusalem Council, they finally come up with this verdict. And they say this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Here's the only rules that we ask you to follow. That you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. (laughs) After all that, 20 years since the birth of the church, for the church to actually get on board with what God had impressed Peter to say that first day when the Holy Spirit was poured out, that this thing was for everyone. 20 years. And these were the people that hung around Jesus and his earthly ministry. Because really, (laughs) what you see going on with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, it's the same thing that was going on with Jesus. How many times did Jesus get in trouble because he would say something like, you've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. You heard it said, you shall not murder. But I'm telling you, it's it's not just about murder. It's about the anger in your heart. Deal with that. One of the craziest things that Jesus ever said, at least from the perspective of people that were listening to him, he says, you want to know what sums up the entire Law and prophets of the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That's it. Do that. <laughs> Jesus was always offending people because he kept uh, his understanding of Scripture and God was, was very different, and it, it was counterintuitive to them. And we see when the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts, God is behaving badly again and offending people. But this, this is the interesting twist in the story. Because I'm sure when Peter and the other disciples were seeing Jesus get tangled up with the Pharisees, they were going like, yeah, yeah, you tell him, Jesus. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Now they're the man. Now they're the religious establishment. Now they're having to deal with this question of who gets to sit at the table? Who gets to come and participate with what we're doing? Who's worthy to be a part of the church? And their main objections on that issue was their understanding of Scripture. See, if, if you'd grown up in Judaism of the first century, you, you, you knew one thing, and that's you didn't hang out with Gentiles. To hang out with Gentiles was to defile yourself, to make yourself unpure, unclean. You didn't eat with them. You didn't do business with Gentiles. And here they are. In the book of Acts, seeing how God keeps blessing the people that they 
been led to believe can't participate. And they finally, God does it enough that they finally have to go like, well, I guess we can continue on with holding to this view of God and scripture and what we think is right. Or we can go with what God's already doing right now. And good thing they did. And it's funny when I even look at those four rules that they give for the Gentile Christians, you know, to refrain from abstain from food, sacrifice to idols. Even that rule, if you go on to the book of First Corinthians, Paul deals with that issue. And he's like, you know, if you want to eat food sacrificed to idols, if you feel good and you're conscious about it, then go for it. Just respect other people that may have an issue with it and try to, you know, abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols if you're hanging around somebody with a weak conscience. And obviously, you know, in the church today, I don't see anybody worried too much about eating a medium rare steak. And I say all this because if you're looking at the book of Acts, you're not going to find a whole bunch of inspirational scriptures that you're just going to want to put on your refrigerator, your bathroom mirror. It's not that kind of book. It's a story. And if you think that the primary purpose of the Bible is to prescribe you the the, the, the right answers to answer all the questions for you, then you're going to look at a book like that and you're going to go like, yeah, I, I, I'm going to skip to something that'll tell me what to do. Acts doesn't tell you what to do. It tells you that if you're going to follow Jesus, even if you were one of the people who were like right next to Jesus, who got in on the original outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that does not exempt you from wrestling with God. God is not a tame God. The Bible is not a tame book, but it's a good book. When I look at the early church wrestling through that issue, you know, it gives me hope because I've seen, you know, if you, if you look back through the history of the church, there are always these issues that kind of come up. I read a fascinating book a few years ago by a historian named Mark Knoll called The Theological Crisis of the Civil War. And... He was talking about how when the issue of slavery really became a hot-button issue in the 1800s, it was a big issue for the church. And initially, the people who had the most scripture on their side for their arguments were the ones who were pro-slavery. Because when you read the Bible, the Bible's pretty ambivalent concerning slavery. Uh Bible doesn't do anything to really condemn slavery. It, it certainly elevates slavery in the Old Testament. You were better off being a Jewish slave than you were slaves of, of you know, some of the other nations around them. But even in the New Testament, it's not like we ever find language that outright says slavery is wrong. I mean, Paul says in Christ there's neither slave nor free. We can see this equalizing thing that happens, and that was one of the crazy things of the early church that People who were divided in society, whether men and women or Jews and Gentiles or slaves and free people, they would all come to church and they were all the same in the church. So there's some things there that I believe in the ministry of Jesus and in the New Testament that are eventually going to overthrow slavery. But it was a very nuanced argument back in the 1800s in America where you saw the rise of Christian fundamentalism. And the fundamentalists who were always looking for a scripture to back their position, they had a lot more scriptures that could justify the enslaving of people in this country. But thankfully, the abolitionists were there 
more nuanced argument about Jesus and the love of God and justice and uh, God freeing the slaves, you know, the children of Israel when they were slaves. Thankfully, they won out. But they had to wrestle through this. They wrestled through it in community. They wrestled through it by the Spirit. They wrestled through it with Scripture. They wrestled through it by observing what God was doing. To read the Bible, to follow Jesus, to surrender our lives to God, is to be invited into wrestling. It's not going to clear up every ambiguity in your life. It's not going to give you an answer for everything. What would the fun of that be anyway? The Bible is not a user's manual. It is not something that solves mystery, but it is rather a window into mystery. And I think for me, making a shift in how I see the scriptures, I, I, I think so much of the lens that I inherited on how to look at the Bible was given to me by fundamentalism and evangelicalism, and it was just this very wooden kind of literal interpretation that you apply to the text. And But, but the reality is, you see this all the time, you can get the Bible to say damn near anything you want it to. You can find a scripture verse or two or three or five that will justify damn near anything you want to do in the world. And that's why we have close to 40,000 different Christian denominations on planet Earth at this time. And most of those divisions come down to interpretations of the scripture. <laughs> I find it even interesting, though, when it comes to Jesus. Jesus never even wrote any scriptures. <laughs> you never find a part where, where Jesus is saying, uh, man, that was really good what I said. Is anybody writing this down? <laughs> now, I believe, I don't believe that scriptures are not important. I believe they're inspired. I believe they can speak to us. But breaking free from that lens of fundamentalism has, has allowed the beauty to emerge. I can engage with this story. I can see God in it. And it is a messy, dirty story uh, with joy and pain and suffering. But that's one of the things that, 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 that makes the Bible so beautiful. You know, I studied history in college. And there's a, there's a saying that you've probably heard before. History is written by the victors. But the Bible is a very unique book, being that it is the most popular, best-selling book of all times. And yet... It contains within it a history that was not written by victors. It was not written by the powerful. It was not written by the rulers of empires. It was written predominantly by people over a 1,500-year period who were on the margins most of the time. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Bible speaks to us still to this day. Because if you find yourself in a place of suffering, if you find yourself in a place where you're, you're, you're grappling with meaning and, you know, just it, it is a story that speaks to you and gives you some hope, gives you some wisdom, some direction. It may not answer the questions that you have in the way you want them answered, but it certainly lands you in good company. And you can definitely see there are people who've gone before me who've had to wrestle through things themselves, and they found God in the midst of it. And that is certainly been my case as well. And the thing is that it's not just the fundamentalists who have really caused us to see 
the Bible and even religion in a bad way, though they certainly um, deserve part of the, the blame on that. But when I see people oftentimes, you know, in the new atheist movement, their attacks on Christianity or the Bible, oftentimes it's coming from this very uh, rationalistic, materialistic kind of, of way. And oftentimes the very thing that they're criticizing is, is the very thing that I'm criticizing right here. And yes, if if you just see the Bible as just this flattened out text that you can just uh, pick and choose things and, and, and it's all meant to be read the same way, then yeah, I I would say, yeah, it's you're not going to necessarily get a whole lot of good stuff out of it. It is a complicated book, as are many ancient books, by the way. But I just want to encourage you. I've, you know, I've this extra crispy podcast, I've never tried to I've never got into this to to make it, you know, a, a podcast strictly about religion. I've even though I am a pastor. And though we do talk spirituality here and there, um, you know, I, just, I don't want to be preachy about any of this. But I do think that, you know, wherever you're at, you might give the Bible another try. You might give God another try. <laughs> uh, whether you believe in God or not, you might just try it out. Try looking at this book, not as a book of answers, but a book of wisdom. A book of stories that, where the, the, the power is actually in the stories many times you know when you go see a movie i have this happen all the time man i'll I'll go see a movie and a movie just impacts me in such a powerful way uh, because you're, you're you're impacted by story and i i think so much of this lens that has become the dominant lens that people view the bible in america and the dominant lens that you know, new atheists are kicking against and, and, and using as a reason to, to throw away Christianity or religion and why all religion is bad and needs to be banned. Um, I, I don't think that's what this book was intended to be about. And I don't think that's what spirituality was intended to be about. I think there is a better way. Because I got to tell you, in all my questioning, as I said, I've been... <laughs> deconstructing my faith for some 20 years. And I do feel like it's in the last year that I've, I've really kind of turned a corner and landed on some things. And that feels nice. And now the, the Bible to me, it's I'm starting to see it as a, a beautiful book again, and it, but in a very different way. But I found that, that in the midst of my questioning, I was descending into the hell of nihilism. Nothing means anything. And that's hell. That is hell, people. That is hell. It's hopeless. I want to say something else about C.S. Lewis. Probably one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books ever. It was called The Great Divorce. And you may even want to read that book before you read the Bible. It is a, it is a fascinating pondering of the question of heaven and hell. And C.S. Lewis kind of imagines heaven and hell in a very different kind of way than, you know, uh, Dante. Hell, as he sees it, I think it's a, a place called Greytown. I may be getting the name wrong, but it's basically an endless subdivision as far as the eye can see. Houses all you know going out to the horizon, but most of them are empty because the people in hell can't get along with each other. 
And so basically, C.S. Lewis makes the point in the book that whatever trajectory you're on in this life, you will just continue that trajectory into the next life. So if you have been a person that has been filled with resentments and pride and contempt and jealousy, well, guess what? If you haven't dealt with that stuff, you're just going to stay on that trajectory. And that means you're not going to get along with any of your neighbors and you're going to move further and further away. And so the isolation of hell actually comes not from something God is imposing on you, but because you can't get along with people. And eventually you become a shadow of your former self. The people of hell are like ghosts upon the earth, C.S. Lewis says. But there's this, this flying bus that picks people up in hell and takes them over to the outskirts of heaven so they can visit And it is a fascinating thing because these people from hell, when they get out of the bus, the grass hurts their feet because they're so insubstantial. But when the people come out of heaven to talk to them, the people of heaven are weighty. They are people of substance. And they offer the invitation to the people in hell. Why don't you come into heaven and experience, you know, love and goodness and care? And so often the people from hell have so much pride and resentment. They're like, I don't need your charity. I'm doing just fine in my house on the outskirts of hell by myself. But I think that that's this aspect that that C.S. Lewis really gets onto here is, is so interesting. Because I think when you look around at people in the world today, people who are weighty, and I'm not talking about just fat, I'm talking about weighty of character, people that you can rely on, people that are there for you, who love you, who who are encouraging you, people who are solid, those are people oftentimes who are filled with love. Whereas when you get around people who are selfish, spiteful, proud, who only use people for their own ends, those are people who are lacking substance. They're becoming less. The invitation of the scriptures is to become a wrestler, to engage in the wrestling, to engage in this struggle of asking questions of God and digging into the questions of our world and and to wrestle with God in that process. But as we do, we become people of substance. I got to tell you, the wrestling can become very difficult. And because of that, I know so many people who just give up on faith. They're like, ah, I just couldn't answer it. I'm just going to go down this. And they end up going into the same kind of hell of, of nihilism. But nihilism is nothingness. To engage in the struggle of wrestling with God is to put you on a path of becoming a person of substance. So, as Forrest Gump once said, that's all I got to say about that. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening to Extra Crispy, this mono-crisp episode. I'm probably going to do a few more of these. I've I've got a... it's, It's been a wild few months. Um... Got a lot of stuff on my plate at the moment, and I'm hoping to get back to some more interviews in the future. But in the meantime, I'm going to to share some thoughts on some things. I'm actually working on a book right now called The Meaning of Sight, and I think I'll try out some of the chapters on you guys because I always work better if I can talk about stuff before I write it down. And I've written a lot of stuff down on that. 
but I find uh, talking about these things is I'm, I'm an outward processor. So for all of you thousands of people that are listening to this. <laughs> so until next time, may your life be extra crispy. Bye.